The following program, The Doris Davenport Show, all local, all the time, is brought to you in part by Doris Davenport. The views and opinions therein do not represent those of Newsweb Radio Company or its management. Substance use or gambling may have caused you to feel like there's no way out. The truth is that there is help for you and your family, and it's closer than you may think. The Way Back In is a nonprofit treatment center for substance use and gambling that helps people in Proviso Township rebuild their lives from the damages of addiction. You can contact Way Back In by visiting waybackin.org or by calling 708-345-8422. That's 708-345-8422. Admissions office is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. If you are experiencing an emergency and need immediate assistance outside of these hours, please contact 911. Way Back In is here to help. Way Back In programming is supported by the Proviso Township Mental Health Commission. Did you know that the Oak Park River Forest Community Foundation has a website, a Facebook page, and a Twitter feed? And they're easy to find. Search online for OPRFCF. See what's new. Find a scholarship. Donate to support local nonprofits. Join a group or just connect. Has substance abuse or gambling taken priority in your life? Are you looking for a change? Visit waybackin.org. Waybackin.org. This ad is supported by the Proviso Township Mental Health Commission. The weather's getting warmer. Time to enjoy the outdoors, biking, hiking, sports. Pains and sprains. I hate venturing out. Let me give you something for that. A Band-Aid? The number to Dr. Victor Romano, 708-848-4662. I'll need a body cast. How about holistic healing? Can you explain that? Not as well as Dr. Victor Romano, 708-848-7662. One Erie Court, Oak Park. Not completing high school is more of a social thing than it was an academic thing. Even though all these years have passed, I still had that longing to have my diploma. At age 30, Carissa finished her high school diploma. If you're even considering getting your high school diploma, you can do it. No one gets a diploma alone. If you're thinking of finishing your high school diploma, you have help. Find free adult education classes near you at finishyourdiploma.org. That's finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by the Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. Has substance abuse or gambling taken priority in your life? Are you looking for a change? Visit waybackin.org, waybackin.org. This ad is supported by the Proviso Township Mental Health Commission. Welcome back to the Doris Davenport Show. My name is Doris Davenport, and I will be your host for the next hour. I am so pleased to be back with you all. There's so much to talk about. My goodness. Hey, Paul. 
You are talking to me, though, right? Okay. <laughs> that's right. That's that, right. That gives anyone a clue. As to that who's gives in somebody studio a today. clue who's in the studio today. How you doing, Paul? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Pretty good. Did you have a good week? I did. I did. I can tell. You're, you know, I'm looking over there at you. You're sporting a bit of an Elvis do over there. Oh, what? The the, the, my, the long yeah. in the front? Got it's, it flowing? I, I don't like to cut my hair in the winter, you know, really? for obvious reasons. So, uh-huh. And I usually, I used to go like one haircut a year, so I'd get like super long and then I'd oh, go wow. super short. But I, I think I'm due once it starts warming up here in a couple months. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm thinking of a makeover. I haven't decided what I want to do, but those times between spring and between winter and spring and between summer and winter, I start to get a little bored. Yeah. So I want to do something different, and I'm thinking about that now. Well, folks, I'm trying to be light because, you know, we all heard about what happened um, this weekend with the... Um the release of the video in Memphis, Tennessee, and we are absolutely going to touch on that uh, during this uh, hour. But I am starting a series of uh, interviews with mayoral candidates for the city of Chicago mayor. And I've invited all of the candidates to come on, and we will be interviewing those who accept. Now, mind you, all of them have said that they would, with the exception of Chewy Garcia. He's the only one that has not consented as of yet. And of course, it will all be about scheduling, because I only have the one hour. I'd like to do them in the studio. Um, I will make an exception if we can work it out to um, do the interviews and then run them on Sunday. Uh, But today, we don't want to waste a lot of time. We want to get right into it because we do have um, a lot of conversation. And who is in the studio today? I am pleased to welcome a man that I consider a friend. And this is none other than mayoral candidate, Paul Vallis. Welcome. The other, the other Paul. And the, I've been bald since uh, college, so I, I don't have a makeover. No makeover possibilities unless I start getting plugs. Well, welcome back to the Doris Davenport Show. You are not a stranger to the Doris Davenport Absolutely Show. Absolutely not. It's How are you doing? You. Good. How's it going on the campaign trail? Good. I'm I'm in the lead, so I know. I, you can always tell by the level of attacks you start getting. You know, somebody <laughs> said, hey, they never attacked you before because you've never been in the lead. So. Well, doesn't that depend on who you ask? Because the mayor certainly came out and said she was in the lead. Uh, yeah, well, she did her own poll. You oh, know? I wasn't you know, aware of that. Yeah, I always go, Chuy Garcia's <laughs> poll had me in the lead. Of course, we've done our own poll. And, of course, it, there was a leaked SEIU poll. Uh-huh. That basically came out, which we weren't supposed to see. That also said it. Either way, you know, I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not thinking about position right now. We're just looking at the finish mm-hmm. line, and I'm afraid if I look to um, who's in the left lane or who's in the right lane, I might lose a few seconds. That's right. So you want to stay focused. Exactly. Well, listen, you're a one-time, they call you a one-time City Hall insider. Um, You were, you served as Chicago Public School CEO under Mayor Richard Daley. Mm -hmm. You ran unsuccessfully for governor in 2002. um, And then you moved on to Philadelphia, New Orleans, Haiti, Chile, and Bridgeport, Connecticut, where you uh, did some pretty major uh, things in the school systems there. Thank you. Um, and then you got into the mayoral race um, when Rom was it before Rom dropped out, right? That's right. You I was one of the first ones to challenge Rom. He, That's didn't, he right. didn't see me 
you coming. He did not see you coming. <laughs> <laughs> you are married to Sharon Vallis. You have two children. I have two three adults. children. Three. Yeah, I lost my youngest son. Oh, that's son. right. I'm sorry. I'm so that's sorry. Okay. That's okay. I apologize, Paul. Um, and your two children are police officers? One is, uh, well, they're both veterans, uh-huh. as am I, but my uh, oldest boy is a firefighter in Englewood. Uh-huh. And, you know, Paulie was in Afghanistan mm-hmm. and uh, graduated. Number one from the fire academy, I'm proud to say, about five years ago. And he, and he got to pick his uh, his own fire station, so he, he picked the firehouse in Englewood. Oh, awesome, and, awesome. And my middle boy is a tactical officer in San Antonio. Well, that's good. I have never heard of a fire department making a decision not to put out a fire because of the race of the person who's <laughs> living right. in the house. So that's right. Kudos to him. You were born right here in Chicago. I was in how, how old are you? I was 69. 69, all right. And you live now in Lincoln Park? I know. Right now I'm living in Bridgeport. In Bridgeport. Okay, great. And what is your current job? Well, right now I'm doing a lot of consulting from time to time, although Mm -hmm. I am focusing on the race. But I'm actually working uh, on two projects. They're not-for-profit projects. One project is creating a platform that schools can access to recruit teachers. Mm -hmm. That that project is up and running, and we're we're kind of like it's in the pilot stage. And then, uh, you know, I've been helping other school districts open uh, military first responder high schools. Mm-hmm. And um, and in Arkansas, we are opening a military first responder high school. It's ROTC five days a week. Mm-hmm. But uh, the students in their sophomore, junior, and senior years can select first responder uh, um professions that they're interested in, and they participate in paid internships. So mm-hmm. whether it's like police department, fire department, avionics, nursing, EMT, and it provides a direct pipeline. So in other words, in Little Rock, the next generation of firefighters, the next generation of police officers, the next generation of EMTs, they'll actually come from the community, come from that school. Mm-hmm. And, and the school's about, it'll be about 80% minority and about 80% poverty. Uh, mm-hmm. It is an open enrollment school, but the school uh, targets uh, uh, individuals uh, from at-risk communities. So, and you know, where will it be? You said. Pardon me. Where will it? Where will it? It'll be, be in. It'll be in Little Rock, mm-hmm. Little Rock, Arkansas. Mm-hmm. I, I've actually opened eleven of these. Seven in Chicago. There are seven military academies in Chicago. They're all above average or high performing schools. I opened two in Philadelphia. And one in uh, New Orleans and one in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and they're all open enrollment schools. They're all they're overwhelmingly minority, overwhelmingly low income, and over, and they are all successful. Well, you know, since we're on the subject of mm-hmm. education, why don't we tackle that first? Um, and I will say on the outset, this is WCPT 820 Talk Radio, where facts matter. Paul is going to open the phone lines right after our 3.30 break. So I know I already see calls coming in. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not going to take any calls the first half an hour because I want to get through some uh, conversation. And then the last 15 minutes, I won't take any calls because that's when I want to talk about the Memphis situation. Uh, so we are here at 773-763-9278. That's 773-763-9278. Education. 
Um, Paul, now we know in Chicago there are, and I was surprised to learn this. Now, I've, you and I, <laughs> over the years, love to have deep dive conversations, and that's one of the reasons I love talking to you about these things. You do your homework. Um, when you have a plan, you do come out and you do, you tackle all phases of the plan, and I appreciate that. Others may not like it, but that's because they don't have time to read or don't want to take the time, and I do. So with education, in Chicago, there is um, there, I, w- I won't say perceived because it's certainly not perceived. It's real. There is a division between those who support charter schools mm-hmm. and those who support Chicago public schools. And I know that technically, and I use the word technically, that Chicago, that charter schools are public schools. But in the minds of a lot of people, they aren't because they don't have to follow the same rules. And many believe they siphon funds from Chicago public schools. But what I was in, what I was surprised to learn is that you are a huge supporter of school choice. And a lot of people may not realize what school choice really means and why that has you supporting charter schools in the way that you do and not ever accepting the accusation that you support one over the other. What do I mean by this? What is the population? what What is the majority race of the students in charter schools in Chicago? They're black. In fact, 96% of all the children who go to charter schools are either black and Latino, and I think over 85% are, are come from families that are considered below the, are considered in the low-income cat- category. So they're Title I eligible. So for, for many poor children in the city, charter schools are the only alternative uh, to perhaps their their neighborhood school that that they may perceive as not being rigorous enough or being not being uh, not being safe enough. So now, how do you how do we get over this divide? Because there are a lot of people who, frankly, they look at charter schools not as a real mm-hmm. option or not as a um, um, an um, an institution that is educating black kids like Chicago public schools. Well, you know, charter schools nationally within the black community are very popular. Mm -hmm. National surveys show almost 70% support charter schools. And during COVID, when schools, when uh, public schools shut down across the country, uh, charters, they, I I think schools nationally, traditional public schools lost about a million and a half students. Uh, Charter schools saw their second biggest enrollment in, in, in history. Let me let me say that in Chicago, the charter schools were also forced to remain closed. So there were many charter schools that wanted to open during COVID. The schools were closed for 15 months with devastating consequences. Devast- and we can talk about that in a second. But uh, but as you know, the Catholic schools first uh, reopened, at least after that initial period. The following year, COVID hit in March. Most schools stayed closed through June, and then the following year they opened. As you know, Janice Jackson pushed to, the, to open the schools at least three times in face of opposition from teachers' union leadership. And obviously the mayor didn't ultimately cave to the union. And I think one of the reasons that Janice left was for that reason, not that she was unwilling to, to take on or to try to negotiate with the Chicago Teachers Union. But, but at the end of the day, you know, charters offer, you know, a public school choice. Now, let me point out that um, there's this tendency in this race for me to get saddled with things that were done by my successors. You know, I'm often I often explained you're confusing me with that 
that other tall superintendent, you know. But the uh, uh, we opened 18 charter schools in Chicago. Um, one charter school, Chicago International, actually had four campuses, so that's where we got to 18. And I, of course, um, um, uh, working with Jack Weiss from the Alternative Schools Coalition, brought these uh, alternative schools for kids who had dropped out, kids who had been incarcerated and were returned back to the system, uh, kids who had been expelled because of zero tolerance policy. There had always been about almost two dozen neighborhood schools, small neighborhood schools that that provided educational services for those kids. So, so uh, working with Jack and the Alternative Schools Coalition, we brought them into a single charter so that they could get funding. And again, they educate kids who have left the system, 18, 19, 20, 21-year-olds. So, so those are the charters that we did. Only later after my departure did did the uh, administration do Renaissance 2010, where they went into neighborhoods throughout the city and they converted schools to charter schools. Uh, you know, they uh, converted private uh, public schools, traditional public schools to charter schools. So a lot of times there's this tendency to to you know, throw out or to, to criticize me for having been responsible for Renaissance 2010 mm-hmm. when that really post-dated me. I'll point out that during our tenure in the Chicago Public Schools, and it wasn't me alone, I, obviously Gary Chico was my was my uh, chief of, uh, was was my board president, Cosette Buckney was my chief of staff. Our enrollment actually grew by almost 40,000. It was, it, 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 it was, it's really the only time since 79 that enrollment has grown and, and and we were we literally had to open schools to relieve overcrowding since our departure the enrollment of the district has declined by 125,000 so clearly we were doing something right and and let me let me say that the charter school enrollment didn't it wasn't the reason for that growth we actually only had i don't know maybe we had 6,000 kids in, in charter schools if that many enrollment grew in the traditional schools because we not only opened a number of new magnet schools, incidentally, which all had neighborhoods set aside. So when I opened Walter Payton, Cabrini Green was still standing. It had a neighborhood set aside. When I built Gwendolyn Brooks in Roseland, right across the street from where I used to live, where I grew up as a kid, it had a neighborhood set aside. When I rebuilt Limbalum and and King, King High School, which was on the verge of closing, and it became a college, um, it became a magnet, uh, they also had neighborhood set aside. But we also put what I call magnet programs in neighborhood schools. The International Baccalaureate Program was put in 14 neighborhood schools. All those schools are thriving because of the IB program. So our objective was to expand more quality public school choices as opposed to just mm-hmm. saddling the district with charter schools. So, And I think it was reflected in not only the fact that we had labor peace for seven years mm-hmm. uh, or the fact that we were able to Increase our enrollment uh, uh, for for you know for every year that we were there. I think enrollment grew by for for seven or eight years before it began to decline again. But I also think it was the uh, and you can certainly uh, give testimony to this. It was a real period when schools were open on time, when teachers got pay increases, when we were hiring more staff. Um, I don't think I ever closed a single school. I mean, it was really kind of a period of. Uh, it was a real renaissance. It was really a period of growth and prosperity and and unity. That's not to say 
that we solved all the problems. But if you remember, Clinton came to town again and again and cited us as a national model. Yeah, I do remember um, those days, and I'll make this statement to wind up this portion. Um, And I did want to give you an opportunity to really speak freely about education, because when Brandon comes on, uh, Brandon Johnson, another candidate, I know his primary objective is education, Mm -hmm. and he will be speaking about that. I do, uh, when I was the director of the International Trade Bureau for the Rainbow Push Coalition working uh, directly for and under Reverend Willie Taplin Barrow and Reverend Jesse Jackson Sr., um, we worked intimately with you You uh, as head of the Chicago Public Schools. And frankly, you know, Jeanette Wilson was a major player then during those days as well. Uh, She still is, but I'm specifically talking about the work that we did with the schools. Yes. And I have to say, we did some pretty major things and got a lot of accolades for them, and people were very pleased with them. Well, well, our minority woman-owned business set-aside programs for our capital, uh, our capital program, we had a $3.2 billion capital uh, program, and 55% of all the contracts went to black and Latino woman-owned businesses. Incidentally, 36% of those contracts with the, went to black male-owned businesses. And I remember that because That's I was right. the director you, of the International you Trade were Bureau. one of the architects of that. That's right. And how I would change that today is that that number would be for women-owned businesses. Uh, black and Latino women-owned businesses. Now, let me ask you... Um, uh, so that, I, I think I think that is what I yeah, want. That's the record, and it's really yeah. important in this campaign that people understand that you know don't confuse me with things that were done when I was in Philadelphia or, mm-hmm. or, or New Orleans <laughs> or when I was going to Haiti forty times. I mean, the mm-hmm. bottom line is a lot of things have p- happened that that over time have done damage to the system, and it's really important to this because we were cordial. We had a good relationship with the right. Teachers Union. Right. So now I want to move to finance. Yeah. The budget for the city of Chicago. What is it, about $20 billion? What's the budget? The the mayor controls $28 billion Mm -hmm. in spending, not counting, like, that's not Capital counting projects. infrastructure money. That's not counting yeah. the COVID money that came yeah. in. Yeah, twenty-eight billion, and and that includes. You have to understand what the what the mayor controls is not only the city, the schools, at least for the next couple of years, and of course city colleges, park districts. They controls the airports, the water sewer department controls CHA, CTA. Um, it's I mean it's twenty billion over almost a hundred thousand jobs. So people have to understand just how immense. The, the the kind of the, the combined governmental budgets are in Chicago. So if you look at the budget buckets, how many buckets would you say are in the budget for the city of Chicago? How many for, buckets? Like like of your mate, you've got every campaign has transportation, finance, housing, environment. Oh my God! Yeah, know? yeah. I mean, um, <laughs> all right. Let me ask you. Let me ask it this way. A simpler way. If you looked at the current budget. Yeah. What would you say are the two items that are most out of line on that budget? Well, you know, I think, first of all, uh, I'm not saying it's out of line. Uh, What's out of line is how they're spending the money, Mm -hmm. not how much money they're getting. Mm -hmm. The schools constitute the biggest part of the the governmental budgets at $9.4 billion. And and I'm not counting all the COVID money they have left. This is their budget this year. I think they have about a billion dollars in unspent COVID money. They're not... They're they're properly trying to to roll some of that money off into mm-hmm. the future because they don't want to become too dependent on it, mm-hmm. which is a sound way to go. But that's about thirty seven, thirty eight percent of all the spending uh, that is uh, that 
you know, all the governmental spending is for elementary secondary education. Let me provide a comparison. Uh, we're spending about four and a half times for K to 12 education as we are for public safety. Now, I'm not criticizing that. I'm just pointing it out as a fact because we always hear, oh, we're spending too much on cops and stuff like that. We should spend more on education. We're spending the equivalent of $30,000 a year per pupil. Mm-hmm. in the Chicago public schools. The fundamental problem is, and look, I believe schools have to have top priority when it comes to funding. I've helped secure funding. In New Orleans, I negotiated the largest FEMA contract after Katrina, uh, 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 settlement after Katrina, to $2 billion to rebuild all the schools in New Orleans. So I'm, I've, I think I've had a knack for getting both the federal and state to give more money to schools. But the point that I want to make is the question is how much money is actually finding its way into the classroom. And if you look at the money that's allocated, the, the way the money that's allocated, maybe 60% actually finds its way into the classroom because of the central office bureaucracy, because of so many programs that are run by the central office, you know, mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. so clearly a, a, a fundamental question is, how are the resources finding their way into the schools? If you look on paper, go to Wikipedia and look at the ratio of like teachers to students, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in the, the database, there's one teacher for every 16 or 17 students, one employee for every eight students. Well, are we seeing that in classroom size? Are we seeing that in staff? Are we seeing that in social workers? Are we seeing that in librarians? Are we seeing that in, in nurses? So so the question is, a, a big question is, how is that money being allocated? Is it finding its way into local schools? How are How is that revenue being distributed? You see what I mean? And Would I you think give that's more authority issue. to principals on how that Absolutely. money gets spent? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. What I learned in, in, in New Orleans were... What was uh, New Orleans was considered maybe the worst district in the country, cer- certainly academically, the second worst district in in um, in Louisiana. And, and I was recruited to New Orleans to implement a school design that was that was developed by Democrats. Mm-hmm. Uh, Governor Blanco, Moon Landrieu, you know, the famous, you know, integrationist mayor in, in uh, New Orleans, who reached uh, Mitch Landrieu, who later on became the the mayor uh, he, he, in his father's footsteps and tore down all the you know Confederate war memorials. And, of course, the great Mary Landrieu, the senior senator. So but when I went there and we be, and we and we had an opportunity to actually build a new district, we did so from the ground up. The idea was we got to push as much of the money down to the local schools as possible. So and to give the discretion to the local to the principal and the local school boards Mm -hmm. so that the money would follow the kids and the schools would have the autonomy to have a longer day, a longer year, to have more staff support. They would have the autonomy on whether or not they wanted their curriculum to be more Afrocentric or Latino centric. Glad to hear that. Glad to hear that. That autonomy. Mm -hmm. Would you do you support an appointed or elected school board? I'm comfortable with the elected school board. You know, a lot of people say, well, Vallis is a supporter of appointed school school board. He doesn't support elected school board. I've never had I've never had the chance to decide to pick my board. <laughs> you know, I was I like to say I was drafted to, right. be, to run the Chicago Public Schools. And of course, when I went to Bridgeport, Connecticut, we had an elected board. Yeah. You know what I mean? So at the end of the day, uh, you're comfortable I, with both. Yeah. And I'm not afraid of democracy. Good. At the, 
And is, yeah. you just you establish a relationship. Mm-hmm. Plus, as mayor, you know, I would be aggressive about, you know, running candidates for the elected school board that basically embraced your uh, ideas, of my course. ideas and my Any approach. Any leader would yeah. do that. Of course. Yeah. Of course. You know, I, I consider myself um, a global traveler. I've been to many different countries. Uh, I love mm-hmm. traveling and learning about new cultures. Mm-hmm. And whenever I go to a new city, I think there are two things that I look at. One is their transportation system, mm-hmm. um, and another is their, like, homeless population. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, you know, I feel that, well, I don't ride public transportation in the city of Chicago because I fear for my life. Um, and I don't like the smells. Mm-hmm. I don't like being harassed. And every time I venture out to say, okay, I'm going to get on public transportation, I'm faced with one of those things. It's just not for me. Uh, and unless something drastic right. and major is done with the transportation, the local transportation system yes. in Chicago, I will not be on it. So I'm going to tie that to a couple of things. Uh-huh. The fact that the transportation system is beneath my standards, I feel that I'm forced to drive my car every day. But being forced to drive my car every day makes it very difficult to support any candidate who is not making a very direct declaration to work toward dismantling the red light camera system, Mm -hmm. which, in my view, is a money grab for the people. It is a nickel and dime tax, and it is being increased as opposed to being dismantled. And on the housing, the homeless front, Mm -hmm. you know, Rahm Emanuel, as far as I'm concerned, tried to hide homeless people. He moved the biggest shelter that we had Mm -hmm. away from downtown Chicago, which I was a volunteer at and very disappointed to see Mm -hmm. him do. Um, So I'm tying those three things together, really. Talk to me, please, about your strategies in addressing these issues. Let me talk about Let me begin with transportation. And then we're going to take a break, Paul. All right, great. And let me know. Give me my two-minute warning, if you can. Yeah. Yeah. And and, and this is (laughs) 773-763-9278. Paul is going to open the phone line, 763-9278. That's 773 area code. Very, very quickly, Mm -hmm. the the CTA is facing a monumental crisis because uh, average uh, uh, daily ridership is down half a million. And right now, the fare box only covers 18 percent of their operating costs. What that means is when COVID money runs out, the CTA could go bankrupt. Mm. So so they have got to do something. And I'll tell you, uh, stop blaming it on COVID. It's because half WBZ survey said half the riders feel that the CTA is not safe. Well, frankly, I made my decision to stop riding CTA and and, and Chicago public transportation before COVID hit. Right. So that's my response to and that. What's, and what's happened is it's not only driving ridership away, but it's impacting service because uh, there's been a massive exodus of CTA employees because of crime and and they're having trouble filling those vacancies because of crime. So you've got to get a handle on crime. And look, they're spending $100 million on private security. I mean, I don't even have to talk about the private security. You can't make arrests, minimum wage, very little training. They they, they don't carry weapons, etc. For that amount of money, you could increase the number of trained police officers assigned to the CTA to walk the stations, to walk the platforms, to do community policing on public transportation, to ride the trains to about 500. Do you agree with Dr. Willie Wilson that those police officers should be armed? 
Well, yes. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I think you need armed mm-hmm. police officers. You need Chicago police officers. But what you need to do is, and I believe I can do this, is you need to get support so that you're hand-picking those officers. You're just not sending somebody there. They're bidding into these positions. The, the, the transit police need to be especially trained and dedicated. They need to be a unit that specializes, like they do in New York, with public transit safety. It's the only way you're going to begin to restore ridership. It's the only way you're going to be able to fill the, the, the vacancies, the employee vacancies, so that you can start to, you know, do the other things like better maintenance, better time, clean up the CTA, etc. Yeah, so part of the issue is that the trains and the buses are homes to people. Yeah, they I are. Mean, they, are. They literally are homes to people. So what you need to do is, you know, what you need to do is, obviously you need to have police there, but you need, as the other candidates have talked about, Cam Buckner and others have talked about, you know, you need an ambassador program so the police are not the only responders, so that the police can connect people to social services. But... But, you know, the homeless people aside, people are getting assaulted at, at a per capita rate that is a record rate. That's right. And we're going to get to crime. Yeah. So, but the so homeless population, yeah. I mean, it is growing. When I think of how can you tell when I'm traveling around and I go to another country and in that city and I look and see many, many poor people and many, many homeless, I have to ask myself, what are they doing to help these people? We, our homeless population is growing so, so, I think this, so I think this is what you have to do. First of all, <clears throat> there's a lot of reason people are homeless. And sometimes even if you find them a, a place to stay, ultimately they become homeless again. So yeah. so you've got to assess the reasons for that. Mm-hmm. A lot of times it's Some drug related. Some people don't Exactly. There's a whole number of things. But that said and done, you know, this is what I would do. I would do the following things. You know, I would start spending tax and government financing money on affordable housing. And and so, for example, there's fifteen thousand uh, uh, residential, un- or f- there's fifteen thousand buildings. They're either single family or multifamily dwellings that are empty, that are in tax court, that are unoccupied because people haven't been able to fill, pay their property taxes. What I would do is I would go out and I would have to see through eminent domain or tax sales, whatever, secure those buildings, turn them over to not for profits and community developers, even faith based, uh, uh, some of your dynamic faith based developers, and I would turn them over and and give them subsidies to upgrade those buildings, and those buildings could be made available to address a variety needs. One, homeless. Two, returning citizens. In other words, individuals who are being released from incarceration. You know, big issue. Big issue is, you know, they're released. They have no adult or occupational training skills. A lot of times they have homeless issues. Third, domestic violence. I mean, the uh, there's reports out that technically only about 10 percent of the domestic violence cases, the cases involving the assault of women and stuff like that, are are ever responded to by the police department for a variety of reasons. And, and and some of the biggest problems in domestic violence abuse cases is the inability to find alternate shelters for women. So those are things that you could do in the communities just with those buildings, securing those buildings, turning those buildings over, pro- over to community-based organizations and not-for-profits. Let me ask you a question about that because um, just, just hopping back on finance for a moment, historically, there's a major argument, one I'd have to say I agree with, that TIF money – Harold Washington started TIFFs. TIFFs mm-hmm. came out of Chicago, and they were created—you were budget director. Mm-hmm. They were created to help 
distressed communities. So the argument, of course, is Chicago looks the same today in these right. distressed communities as it did when Harold Washington put that put the TIF program together. So to take that money now and use it for anything other than what it was intended for seems like a slap in the face to those communities. What's your response to that? Well, you know, my position is you need to have TIF fair share because most of the TIFs are in areas that are already affluent anyway and that are experiencing growth in their property tax revenues. So use Look, that money. Yeah, exactly. Well, what you have fair share. First of all, I believe that, and, and I've talked about this over the last four years, that you need really need to create a community investment fund in which all the monies, whether it's casino money, whether it's a gaming money, whether it's cannabis money, whether it's money from developer fees, or a share of TIF revenues, a share of TIF surplus revenues, uh, is put in this investment fund, and that investment fund is dedicated to to um, communities on, on the south and west sides. Mm-hmm. So you create a community investment fund, and, and then you really create a development authority that can, in effect, drive economic development in those communities but have access to this community investment fund. And I think that's something, you know, the city has declared a billion dollars, a billion dollars in TIF surpluses the last three years. That's a billion dollars that were left to the mayor for her discretion on how to spend. How much of that money has found its way into housing? How much of that money has found its way into community services? Well, that's a good question. And I hope to ask her that question if she consents to an interview. I'll give you a list of questions to ask her. Uh, okay, I'm joking. That, that would be I'm, fine. I'm joking. Um, I, mean, I ask everybody, tell me what your <laughs> issues are. Uh, this is Doris Davenport. I am the host of the Doris Davenport Show. You are listening to WCPT 820. It's Progressive Talk Radio, where facts matter. My guest today is Paul Vallis, candidate for Chicago mayor. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back to take a couple of phone calls. Paul, let's hear that sports report at all. Let's pay some bills. Substance use or gambling may have caused you to feel like there's no way out. The truth is that there is help for you and your family, and it's closer than you may think. The Way Back In is a nonprofit treatment center for substance use and gambling that helps people in Proviso Township rebuild their lives from the damages of addiction. You can contact Way Back In by visiting waybackin.org or by calling 708-345-8422. That's 708-345-8422. Admissions office is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. If you are experiencing an emergency and need immediate assistance outside of these hours, please contact 911. Waybackin is here to help. Way Back In programming is supported by the Proviso Township Mental Health Commission. The weather's getting warmer. Time to enjoy the outdoors. Biking, hiking, sports. Pains and sprains. I hate venturing out. Let me give you something for that. A Band-Aid? The number to Dr. Victor Romano. 708-848-4662. I'll need a body cast. How about holistic healing? Can you explain that? Not as well as Dr. Victor Romano. 708-848-7662. One Erie Court, Oak Park. Did you know that the Oak Park River Forest Community Foundation has a website, a Facebook page, and a Twitter feed? And they're easy to find. Search online for OPRFCF. See what's new. Find a scholarship. Donate to support local nonprofits. 
join a group, or just connect. Has substance abuse or gambling taken priority in your life? Are you looking for a change? Visit waybackin.org. Waybackin.org. This ad is supported by the Proviso Township Mental Health Commission. Discover one of our community's unique resources, the Oak Park River Forest Community Foundation, www.oprfcf.org. Enjoying the Doris Davenport Program? You're not alone. The Doris Davenport Program is quickly becoming the place for all things local. If you have a quality local business or offer a quality service, the Doris Davenport Program is tailor-made for you. We offer reasonably priced announcements available to all. To find out how we can work together for success, call 1-312-296-9709 and speak to Doris directly about attaining your goals. 1-312-296-9709. It's now time for the Doris Davenport Show, all local, all the time, sports report. I'm Paul Shavari. It's at halftime in the NFC Championship game. The Eagles with a 21-7 lead on the 49ers. Just headed to halftime uh, just now, uh, all four touchdowns in the game, rushing touchdowns, and the three touchdowns that the Eagles have scored have now tied them with the Frankfurt Yellow Jackets for the most rushing touchdowns in a season. Uh, in case you're wondering who the Frankfurt Yellow Jackets uh, are, it's the franchise from Philadelphia that existed before the Eagles. A little fun fact for you there. In the game so far, Brock Purdy had to leave his return as questionable an elbow injury after uh, suffering a collision with a defensive lineman for the Philadelphia Eagles. The later game today, the AFC Championship is going to feature the Cincinnati Bengals who knocked out Doris's Buffalo Bills. Sorry. Sorry, Doris. No. Um, It's okay. We're going to root for them. It's a good game, yeah. We're rooting for the Bengals from here on. I I couldn't see you rooting for the Chiefs after everything's said and done. I couldn't either. I'm with you, Paul. uh, That game kicks off at 5.30 later today. The big prize for both the uh, games is Super Bowl 57. That'll be in two weeks. Where Rihanna is performing. Yes. That will be exciting. Her first performance in years, I want to say. That's right. That's right. Um, That'll be in two weeks from now. We'll definitely keep you updated on that one. Uh, Meanwhile, Patrick Mahomes is slated to play in today's game. Has that high ankle sprain. Andy Reid, the head coach for the Chiefs, said he looks good. He's moving around good. He'll go out and play, although that was at the Friday press conference. Tennis news today. Novak Djokovic won the Australian Open. He now has 23, I'm sorry, 22 22. 22 Grand Slam titles. Ties him with Rafa Nadal, but he still trails Serena Williams and Margaret Court. And, of course, there's three more Grand Slams uh, this uh, this calendar year. So it might happen this year. It might happen uh, she, sometime she in the future. Uh, how many does Serena have? Uh, Serena's 23. So, yeah, so right. one more and he'll tie her. And then Margaret Court with 24. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bulls won last night, 128-109 to at the Orlando Magic. Their next game is going to be Tuesday where they host the L.A. Clippers. Chicago Blackhawks lost last night in Edmonton, 7-3. Their next game is going to be on Tuesday night against the Anaheim Ducks. And Candace Parker, sad news. She's signing with the Las Vegas Aces, I leaving the hometown Chicago oh. Sky. We will miss her. Just when we're getting investors. Right. 
right? Yeah. And she brought us a championship, though, so she's she always going to be a legend here in town. I hope Chicago one day to see her heart. number retired up in those uh, <laughs> rafters at Wintrust Arena. Hey, that's going to do it for the Sports Report. I'm Paul Shabari. Now back to the Doris Davenport Show. Well, thank Paul you, Paul. Welcome. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Welcome back to the Doris Davenport Show. We're here with Paul Vallis, candidate for Chicago mayor. Uh, we've got a caller on the line. Eduardo from the southwest side of Chicago. Looks like you've got a question about COVID and health care. Yeah, Doris. Um, yeah, thank you very much for taking my call. Actually, before I get to my COVID thing, uh, the last period between grammar school and high school mm-hmm. should be like a networking event where you're talking to everybody, where they're not on their electronic devices, because this way you can smoke out any possible mental uh, cases that might be mm-hmm. going on the bad track. But uh, regarding COVID, uh, Paul, uh, there was recent story about uh, not taking the flu shot and the uh, COVID vaccine at the same time. What communication would you have with the health director as far as developments in COVID or any other kind of uh, diseases uh, in the future? Well, well, you know, first of all, I think the health, the city health commissioner has done an excellent job. Mm-hmm. She's been, she's done an excellent job communicating and responding. And I think they've done, you know, after some slow startups, and it was all more city hall than her, than her, um, the problem with her department herself. I think they've, they've done, they've improved upon networking with community-based organizations. I think the health commissioner, particularly when it comes to the schools, you know, you have every school has a local school council. So the ability to communicate to these councils and through the councils communicate to the parents uh, is is unique. Uh, Chicago is one of the few large urban uh, um, districts that actually have working and functioning councils. So I think a better way to communicate with students, obviously just not always through the teachers, but is actually to take full advantage of the fact that these schools are governed by local school councils and any sort of communication that needs to be made, whether it's on public safety, what, whether it's on the issue of sexual abuse uh, reporting, or for that matter, the issue of the importance of, of uh, being vaccinated, the importance of uh, obviously taking flu shots, I think the councils are sometimes ignored and not brought into the process. And I always found that one of the reasons that we improved our effectiveness at communicating to the community uh, during my later years at the Chicago Public Schools was I it, it took me one or two years to recognize that these councils could actually be, you know, be entities that could advance our programs, advance our priorities, advance our initiatives. So mm-hmm. I would take a step to really involve the local school councils and empower them to play a role. Okay, great. Thank you so much for that call, Eduardo. This is WCPT. Um, you know, I'm going to go quickly through a couple of things. You mentioned something earlier uh, that, that jogged something that I've been thinking about a lot, and that was cannabis. I am so disappointed with the state of Illinois and its expenditure of licenses for cannabis. They're setting up a major industry, locking in the foundation of white um, licensures, the people who are going to make the most money, who are going to, who are coming yes. in, making the rules. And there's, and they're being, and they're all over the city of Chicago. If you are mayor of the city of Chicago, I frankly would like to see a drop dead battle between you and whoever the governor is on this issue, because it is a crime that an entire industry yes. is being created and black people are being locked out. Four, four years ago on, on your show, uh, when, mm-hmm. uh, when um, 
we were in uh, Oak Park. Mm-hmm. Yep. I said that uh, before they legalized cannabis, it was that the cannabis industry needs to be owned and operated by individuals in the minority community. Yes. And I also talked about prioritizing when it comes to video poker or gaming or whatever. I mean, the community, the money should flow into the this community investment fund that we should own, that the community should own the distribution centers. And, and they've done nothing. Yeah, and, I'm, and nothing. I'm so tired of having this situation where white people get to come in, they're the leaders, they're the frontline beneficiaries, and then black people get the secondary and the third and the fourth level down so that you're still being overseen by somebody else. Absolutely, absolutely. We need to be at the table, period. Two, two things need to be done. First of all, we need minority. We need, I always felt that we need minority representation to be the majority ownership because I, I always felt that cannabis, even the casinos early on, four years ago, I talked about why can't the casino be locally owned? Why can't it be locally owned by the community? Why can't it be locally owned by individuals you know, in you know, in the disadvantaged communities. So there's, you know, so I would seek to level the playing field and reverse that. But the second thing is, I'm furious that the state is taking so much of the cannabis revenue. And what does the city get? What is it, eight exactly. percent or something like That's that? That's the battle that I want to fight, I mean, and I'll getting, help anybody fight that battle. They're getting hundreds of millions of dollars because yeah. when I was talking about this four years ago, really mm-hmm. quickly, I had said that if the community owns the means of cannabis production, the growing of cannabis and the distribution Mm -hmm. of cannabis. And if the money flows into the community, that money could be used to finance the restoration of community-based social services. And I just not only talked about the restoration of the mental health centers, but having had a a son who who was a casualty of long-term drug addictions, the importance of opening opioid and drug addiction centers, about family counseling centers, crisis intervention centers. So I will work to right that ship. I'm going to have to ask you to answer quickly on these. How do we avoid creating yet another divide among Chicago's residents? And I'm speaking about migrants coming in. How do we avoid one group of residents crying foul when they see millions of dollars being set aside to help people coming in to navigate? Everybody's a humanitarian at right. heart, I believe. Nobody wants to turn anybody away who really needs help. But if you're one of these distressed communities that looks the same today as it did when Harold Washington right. started, and somebody tells you they're about to drop, you know, uh, um, a few hundred people into your community and then set aside millions of dollars and ambassadors to help them navigate the system. The people in those distressed communities need navigators to help them navigate the system. How do we avoid this problem? First of all, we don't grandstand. We don't grandstand. Uh, Look, you know, it's appalling what the governor of Texas and the governor of Florida are doing in making their bold statement. But you don't encourage them to do that. You don't grandstand and then not be prepared. Look, when when uh, Gary Chico and I were running the Chicago Public Schools, we would have families come, children who we didn't check their immigration status. And, but what we did was we took the kids in 
and then we linked the families with existing institutions, the Department of Immigration and Naturalization. There are systems, there are systems out there already in place that can help, that can help place these individuals. We didn't have press conferences. We didn't raise the flag. We didn't say, look at us, you see. So what they're doing is this is just a product of grandstanding and not being prepared for the influx when it came in. Yeah. But I want to say one more thing. How about returning citizens? Mm -hmm. Yes, that's a big one. uh, Why aren't we as aggressive about dealing with individuals who have been released from incarceration and they're returning to the communities and they need adult debt occupational training jobs and housing? Yes, I don't know if you've uh, had the conversations with him, but Marshall Hatch Jr., Mm -hmm. uh, Pastor Hatch's son, please write his name down. I will give you his information. He is somebody that should be part of whatever... If you are mayor, plan to do. I'll give you his information. He's okay. doing some wonderful work with returning citizens on the south side of Chicago. I'm, I did, I'm sorry, on the west side of Chicago. I, did a, I participated in the Merrill Forum at his church, and of course, both Reverend Hatch and his son were there, and we actually connected. But I, I didn't realize that. I'll be shouting yeah, on that. Yeah, absolutely. So it's 3.54. We are going to spend the le- next six minutes talking about crime and <clears throat> and the like. Now... Paul, I have to tell you, Friday night when I was coming home from work, I was on the phone with my father, and he was on the East Coast. I'm here. We were both waiting for this video to be released. I was wanting to get home. I didn't want to be outside. I wanted to be at home and watch it. <clears throat> I was. My heart was so heavy. I was just appalled at what I saw. Um, to see Tyree um, go through what he went through with those officers. Now, I remember, first of all, let me let me ask this, because we've heard many times how horrific this was, and it was. In the time left, I'm going to be very pointed in some of my questions. Mm-hmm. This unit that they call the Scorpion Unit in um, Memphis, um, I know that you are intimately aware of the police department. You, for free, negotiated this last contract, which had you not done that, we may not have a contract. So thank you for that. And what I applaud you for is in negotiating that contract, the kinds of things that we've been waiting for in the consent decree, you've been able to accomplish with that new contract. Am I correct in that? That's right. All the accountability provisions that they have been demanding, including the provisions um, included and approved in the sergeant's contract were actually put in the FOP contract. Right. Now, in your not, uh, in your knowledge, we all know about Home and Square and the kinds of things that happened there. Is there a unit by any other name like the Scorpion Unit in the city of Chicago with the Chicago Police Department? I don't think there's a unit that com- compares to that. But let me tell you what the police department has to do. We've got to push police officers down to the local district levels, the the commanders need to control to, to have enough officers to ensure that there's beat integrity and to have enough of the support officers so that they can be deployed under the the district commander's discretion. And that's what that's what 
Charlie Beck, the interim superintendent who implemented the consent decree in L.A., if you remember, the interim superintendent, that was his strategy. You need police officers on the street who are known to the community by name and badge number and who in turn know the community. Because and, having and these, let me just say this, yeah. and not just in turn of, of badge number, because the community in Memphis knew those officers by name and badge number. What that police department did was hire criminals. They hired criminals to police criminals. Well, you need and to police non-criminals. Well, first of all, you need and and I'll tell you, it's a real dangerous situation because because so many officers have left because of poor leadership, because of the abandonment of community policing. These killer schedules that have twenty-two officers have committed suicide. They have a they have abandoned all these high standards for the recruitment of officers. They're literally so desperate for officers and standards for raises and standards for uh, promotions. That's right. So what they're doing is they're recruiting probably the weakest class of officers they've ever had, and they're promoting individuals who have not earned the right of promotion, the time and grade, the training, the proven track record. You know, the friends and family promotion system has flooded. Now, you're the, talking about Chicago now. That's right. Has mm-hmm. flooded the exempt ranks with individuals who a lot of times don't have the respect of the rank and file. So replacing Brown, uh, promoting a leadership team um, uh, by drawing on officers who have the respect of the rank and file, professionalizing the exempt ranks so you are promoting people who have earned the right to be promoted, and then not only pushing the police officers down to the local beat so they're familiar, they're not being sent all over like rogue, shock and awe units, but they're known to the community, they're known to, they know the community, but also having the infrastructure of accountability, having having the sergeant to officer ratios, the one to ten that the consent decree mandates, yet they're and on some nights, in some districts, they don't even have a sergeant on duty. So you have the supervisory ranks. You've got to create an infrastructure of accountability, and that needs to be part of any reform of the police department. Yes, well, I have to say that after what I saw there, I'll never look at fire department, EMS, paramedics the same because they were all culpable in that situation. Um, Paul, I wish that we had more time. Uh, We wanted to spend much more time talking about crime, but we literally are out of time. I'm going to give you the last 45 seconds. Well, let me just say this. Look, look, we can't have safe communities unless police officers live up to responsibilities to follow the law and protect us. And when there's egregious misconduct, like the case in Memphis, there must be swift accountability. There will be a zero tolerance for um, for uh, the police officers acting irresponsibly. I'm, I support the police. I believe we need more police officers. We need to fill the vacancies. We need to provide the police officers with more support. We need to encourage them to be responsive and proactive. But uh, we will not tolerate individuals violating people's constitutional rights. Amen. You heard it from the candidate for Chicago mayor, Paul Vallis. My name is Doris Davenport. This is the Doris Davenport Show. I do hope we have kept you informed. We'll see you next week. The following program, the Doris Davenport Show, all local, all the time, is brought to you in part by Doris Davenport. The views and opinions therein do not represent those of Newsweb Radio Company or its management.